you, asking for insight from you, from your word. Show us, God, what you would like to speak to each one of us as individuals. God, I pray that as your word is unveiled this morning, just speak to us through your Holy Spirit who wrote this word, that we might be able to leave here, Lord, just empowered by you after we're done with this service, knowing that you've touched us, Lord, through the the preaching and the teaching and the expounding upon your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the Apostle Paul, as many of you who have read the New Testament would, would just love the words that God had given him as part of our scripture today. But when we look at the church of Corinth, there was a problem. There was a problem of people who came into the church of Corinth claiming that they were apostles. And of course, we understand from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul and those with him set up the church of Corinth. No other person had built that church outside of them. Then you have the deceivers who came in afterward claiming they were apostles and that they were equal to Paul and not just equal to Paul, but superior to Paul. That's the background and setting for today's teaching. We pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 10, even though our main text, as you'll see from your bulletin insert, is chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Paul said this, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who condemn themselves. Here he's speaking of the false apostles that came into the church. It's actually a self-condemnation they have upon their own word when they go in there and teach the opposite of what the apostles taught through the New Testament. But they, and I'm sure you've run into people like this in other fields of study, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. Now think of that. We have a measurement in the Word of God. The measurement is the standard that we have from especially in the New Testament church from Matthew to the book of Revelation. 27 books that God has given us to guide the New Testament church. To teach us what Jesus said in the Gospels as they're unfolded in the fourfold Gospels. And then as we move into the book of Acts and see what God did through the Acts of the Apostles. And then we see what God did through the setting up of the churches following the book of Acts. We have something to measure ourselves by. We're taught to measure ourselves by the Word of God itself. But not these men. No, they came into the church of Corinth patting themselves on the back, measuring themselves by themselves. Saying, I am my own standard. And comparing themselves to themselves. They are not wise to close that verse. The wisdom that they thought they had has actually become foolishness. They are not wise. Verse 13, we, however, and Paul, as I want you to note here, is including those with him. All those who ministered with Paul in each of his journeys. All those who were apostles and co-heirs in the kingdom of God with the apostle Paul. We, however, will not boast beyond measure but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. There's a boundary He set. Not one that you can see, not one you can touch, but He said there's a known boundary we have within the church. God has allowed us to come in. It's a blessing for us to come into the church of Corinth. It's a blessing for us to be your apostles and your fellow workers. And we didn't come in here boasting. We didn't come in here building ourselves up patting ourselves on the back, congratulating ourselves, or comparing ourselves to ourselves. But within the sphere that God appointed us, a sphere, He says, which especially includes you. We elsewhere find that Paul speaks of the Christian church as you are living epistles. You are our epistles written about our heritage. You want to see what the church is like? Look at the people that they taught. That's what he was saying. Well, verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves. 
as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. So here's the sphere of the church. What enlarges him, what gives him something to boast about in the right way is the church itself. You are our testimony, he says. What happens among you has either become to our detriment or to the glory of God. And he says that in the next verse, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So send us forth is what he's saying, and not to boast in another man's fear of accomplishment. But he who glories, and we sang praises today to God, glorifying him. We do that in every worship service, glorifying God. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, one indication, one clue of a false teacher is they will glorify themselves. One clue of a false apostle is that they will come and announce, I am an apostle. Well, you should already know if they're an apostle. Or they will come and announce, I am a prophet. Well, you should already know if they're a prophet. And this is the self-congratulatory situation that Paul spoke about with these men congratulating themselves and measuring themselves by themselves. I know that there's a movement in the Christian church that is not a good thing where we see people rising up in the last 20-25 years claiming new apostleships as if they can improve upon what the church already has. And I knew this man a long time ago in Ohio. As a matter of fact, I fellowshiped at his church. And after I uh, came out west here to do ministry work and, and do my training in the field of apologetics and witnessing to the cults and the world religions and, and dealing with false teachers and so forth, I go back to this man's church. And he sat down at a breakfast place with me. He hands me his business card. His business card now says, Apostle John. I look at it. I said, you're Pastor John. You're not Apostle John. Has anybody told you that besides me? I don't take it off of these people. But he said, oh, no, no. He said, you have to understand the five-fold ministry. You have to, and I said, no, I already understand what you're coming from, where you're coming from with this five-fold ministry business. But this is not something we find in the church as a replacement for the apostles, for the prophets, and Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. You do not tear the foundation out from under the church and build it with new prophets and new apostles and a new Jesus Christ. There's one Jesus who died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Who was buried and was resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-5. through was resurrected according to the Scriptures. There's one Jesus who is the chief cornerstone. And upon that foundation was the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Upon that foundation was built the church. The church having been built. Present tense. We are still in the building process. You do not knock the foundation out and claim new apostles. Well, this is exactly what we find in 2 Corinthians. Had a friend, another friend who was going to write a booklet on the new apostles. And he was calling it the New Corinthians. Because this is exactly what they were facing then. People coming around, and if they had business cards in that day, it'd be the same thing. Announcing themselves and comparing themselves to themselves as we are your new apostles. Paul knocks that out declares himself as the true apostle, but not just by his declaration. He's saying, look at yourselves. What happened in the church of Corinth? We built you up. We came to you preaching the gospel of Jesus. We didn't come preaching ourselves. We didn't come giving you new ideas. We came with the straight gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've been built since then. You are our testimony. You are the one who has enlarged us in our sphere. 
You have shown that we are the apostles. We didn't come and announce ourselves that way, but we did it for the glory of God, not for self-glory. And let him who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Verse 17. For not he who comes, I'm sorry, not he who commends himself is approved. Now it gives us a clue about testing these kind of false apostles. If a man commends himself, he's unapproved. But whom the Lord commends. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So basically Paul is saying, you want to follow these guys? Go ahead and follow them. But you're not going to be approved and neither will they. We're looking for the Lord's approval. We don't look for man's approval. We don't look for man's glorification. We look for what God has anointed and what God has given us. Now verse 1 of chapter 11. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Now he's comparing what people would call folly to what he called the wisdom which was not wisdom that we read earlier in chapter 10 and verse 12. They came to the people saying, well, we're the wise ones. We're the apostles. And they compared themselves to themselves. He says, now bear with me in verse 1 of chapter 11 in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous. Actually, the word here in the Greek is diolo. And that is to where we get our word zeal. I am jealous of you with a godly zeal. With a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you. The word betrothed here is a very interesting word. It actually is different from what we find in other New Testament passages. It means I have promised you unto Christ. I have betrothed you to one husband. I want you to notice that word one husband. There's not multiple saviors. There's one savior. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The word chaste here means pure clean. It's the word hognos in Greek. It means one who has been pure or clean in their origin. Virgin, we don't have to too much expound on that. Virgin means never have had, having sex. The Greek word is parthenos. Now you might be familiar with that from your Christmas stories. Matthew used it, Luke used it to describe the Virgin Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, for an example, in verse 23, it speaks of the virgin, the Parthenos, shall conceive and bear a son. And Luke spoke of her as the Parthenos. Now we see the Apostle Paul bringing this into view for the Christian church, and he's saying, this is what I want you to be. I want to be the one who presents you to your one husband. I want to be the one who presents you not just as Parthenos, as a virgin, but as the pure virgin, as the chaste virgin. So picture yourself in a wedding ceremony. This is not the custom they had, but it's the custom we have, that in typical wedding ceremonies, you have the bride given away. And in most marriage ceremonies, they will say, who gives this bride away to be wed to this man? I've done these weddings all over the country. Who gives this bride away to be married to this man? Paul is saying, I want to stand in that position. My purpose with you as the church is that I raise you purely, that I teach you purely, that I present you to one husband, and I want to be in the position of the father with the bride. I want to be in that position. I want to bring you as the church of Corinth to your groom, Jesus Christ, your one husband, Jesus Christ, and I want to be the one who promises you and gives you away to Him in a pure state. A chaste virgin to Christ. But listen to verse 3. Now this is where we pick up with what we have in our outline. But I fear, he says, and we don't normally think of the apostle fearing anything, but the word here is phobe. It's where we get our words for phobias. 
But I fear, it means I'm alarmed. He is fearful of this, that somehow as the serpent deceived Eve. Now I want you to notice that word deceived here. As a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds should be corrupted from the straight way, the simplicity, the straight and pure way that is in Christ. Now why did I translate it that way? Because that's the way the Greek is. In my New King James Version, and probably most of yours, you'll have a footnote on that that says that the Nestle's text and the United Bible Students text as the word, adds the words, and pure, which was missing from the King James translation. The simplicity and pure way that is in Christ. Paul says, I fear that there's going to be a deception among you. I fear that with these apostles, these men who have come in claiming authority to themselves, but you look at my authority, and I didn't take that kind of glory. I let God be my glory. Let me glory in the Lord. Let me boast in these things that God has done and not in myself. But I fear in the this, in this situation that you're in, that in the same way that Eve was deceived in the garden, through the craftiness of Satan, that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity, the straightness and purity of Christ that we find in Him. The battleground we see with the unsaved so much, we, we look at the unsaved world around us, we think the battleground is always the soul. Yes, the soul is what we're after. We want people to turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. And He is the Savior of my soul. Yes, He is indeed. But the battleground is not the soul here. The battleground is the intellect. The battleground is the mind. This is where deception takes place. See, Eve was deceived in the mind is what it tells us. Then it goes to the soul. And he was concerned about the church here. That Satan would deceive them. The serpent in his way that he did it with Eve would do the same to them. Now the simplicity that is in Christ, this could be taken in twofold. One is that the gospel message that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. He died for our sins, was buried for three days, and was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. That is the simple gospel message. It's not complex. It's not something that's hard for somebody to understand. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. Scripture says, it's called the vicarious atonement in theology, but Scripture says He became sin on that cross for you. For me. That He took your place on that cross. That's what the vicarious atonement means. He became the substitute for you. That while you deserve the punishment, you deserve the death, he took it instead. And He became sin that you might become righteousness in Him. Is what we find in Scripture. Now that message is so basic that you can share it with a young child. And you ask them, would you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And so often they will say yes. They understand the love of God. They understand that Jesus was sent to the earth to die for the sins of mankind and he died on the cross for that purpose and that he was raised on the third day and the scripture tells us that if you confess jesus as lord romans 10 9 and 10 and believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you shall be saved and so we share that simple message with a child they so often accept jesus as the lord and savior but then we find adults who come along and they see that message and say, that's too easy. It's too simple to understand this message about Jesus Christ and all I have to do is put faith in Him, confess Him as Lord, believe in my heart God raised Him from the dead, and you shall be saved. That's too easy. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was sharing Jesus with my relatives 
my cousins first. And I have a cousin, I, I just wanted so dearly to see this man come to the Lord that I shared with him about my salvation in Jesus and I was a teenager when I became a Christian. And he's a couple years older than me. And he said, well, look, when I clean up my act, then I'll come to Jesus. When I clean up my act. See, God didn't put that stipulation on us. He didn't put that requirement on it that you need to clean your act up and then come to Jesus. That's not what he says. We come as we are. Just as I am without one plea. Oh, that I might come to thee. We come to Jesus in our filthiness. We come to Jesus in our depraved, sinful situation. And we ask Him to take us that way and cleanse us. Now it's through His shed blood that He cleansed us. Well, I ran into this cousin at a bar. Not that I was at the bar. He was. I went back to Ohio and to see my family. And uh, I went down to my, my aunt and uh, talked with her and I said, you know, I came all this way to see you guys. Where's my cousin? Oh, he's down at the OK Corral. I said, the bar and grill? She said, yes. And I pick up my Bible. This Bible here, as a matter of fact. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the OK Corral. He won't come to me. I'll go to him. So I walked into the bar with my Bible in hand. And I looked at the bartender. I looked at my cousin. And lo and behold, here's two of my high school friends that I graduated with, sitting there drinking with my cousin. So I sit down at the table, I open my Bible up, and I begin to talk with my first thing I said to my cousin, it's been 30 years now, have you cleaned up your act yet? As soon as I clean my act up, I'll come to Jesus. See, he had no intention of cleaning his act up. Now these two young men who were there with him, I was surprised to see them there. Because when I first got saved, I went around with a guitar, singing in churches. We had a small Christian band, a worship band that I sang in. You don't want to hear me sing now, but back then it was okay. And these were two guys that used to sing with me on the road, sitting there drinking with my cousin. Well, they felt terribly guilty. I didn't go there to lay guilt on them. And they said, well, I'm saved. And I said, yes, you are, but what are you doing here? Where's your testimony of Jesus? Especially to my cousin who's unsaved. So, you know, an interesting thing about it, by the time I had finished talking to them, the pool players stopped playing pool and they came over to the table. The bartender stopped wiping up the counter. He came over. I had the whole bar room talking about Jesus. And I was able to share the gospel with each Well, my cousin took a dive for the men's room and never came back out. But the rest of the people sat there and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. That simple message of salvation. And what do they all want to say? They want to complicate it. They want to make it difficult to get into heaven when God made it so easy that you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That was Paul's fear. That they were going to corrupt the message of Jesus Christ that had been brought into the church. That simplicity, that straight way, as the Greek says here, that straightness or that singleness. Probably a better translation for it. The singleness and purity that is in Christ. And the word purity, I don't want you to miss that too quickly before we go on to the next verse. Notice the, the correlation here between the word purity here and the word pure. It's the same word, same root word in the Greek. That he wants us to be a pure or chaste virgin in our betrothal to one husband. And he doesn't want us to depart through Satan's crafty, deceptive ways into another way that's outside of the straight, pure way in Christ. Now verse 4 is where we get into the question of false apostles, false prophets, false teachers. The ministry that I've been dealing with all through these years. And why do I deal with this? Because I came out of a cult myself. Shortly after I became saved, when I was still a teenager, I was passing out gospel tracts, just passing them out on the street. And uh, I went to a large event called Explo 72. In, now, I realize I'm dating myself with this. Explo 72. And I look at the young faces out here 
And when I'm talking about 40 years ago doing something, I remember when I was your age. It's not all that hard for me. I'm only 61 right now. And I remember in school and college, high school and college, when a teacher would talk about 40 years earlier, that's like 1933. And I'd think, man, you were probably throwing rocks at dinosaurs back then. I mean, I just could not conceive of that, and I understand that with you. But I accepted Jesus as a teenager in 1971. Well, in 1972, I ended up joining a cult. And the only reason I joined them is because they were the only ones I found passing out literature on the street like I was. And I thought, well, I'm passing out gospel literature. They're passing out gospel literature. They invited me to come join in with them, and I did. They were out of Huntington Beach, California, with a man named Moses David Bird. It was called the children of God. I said, I want to be a child of God. I am a child of God. So I want to join the children of God. But I didn't know he was a false teacher. And I had not been well grounded in the word of God at the time. And so, through that experience, I ended up joining the cult. Went back to Ohio. My mother said, you know, I was raised going to church in a Baptist church. We had a divided home. My father was an atheist. My grandmother's an atheist. My great-grandfather's an atheist. I remember all of them talking about... As a matter of fact, when I became a Christian, they were all talking about atheism. And when I became a Christian, the first thing my grandmother said is, I need to get you Robert Ingersoll. She was going to get me out of Christianity by educating me with Robert Ingersoll. That's the kind of battleground I had as a young Christian. The corruption to get you away from the pure things of Christ. And so I spent a few months with this cult that came out of Huntington Beach during what was called the Jesus Movement. And my mother asked me for one last thing. She said, before you go off and join the commune here, I want you to go down to the Baptist pastor you you knew as a youngster and and sit down with him. I thought, great, I can win him over. So I took my Mo letters down. Now, Moses David Berg wrote his own scripture. This is the guy I followed. And it was called, he called his new letters, Mo letters. Moses, David Berg, Moses, and we thought he was the new Moses and new, new prophet. He had Mo letters. So Mo would write letters to all of us, and this was our new epistles. So we thought these were superior to the Bible. And I went down with my collection of Mo letters to this Baptist pastor. And instead of sitting down over a desk and lecturing me about how terrible it was that I joined this group, he sat down on the couch beside of me. And he said, can I look at these Mo letters? I said, yes, I brought a set for you. So he looked at him and said, mind if I write on it? I said, they're yours. So he read a paragraph and he starts going through his Bible. He wrote down a Bible verse and he read another paragraph. He goes through his Bible, writes down another Bible verse. He did this about a half a dozen times. I thought, uh-oh, I might be in trouble here. This man knows the Bible. And so he said, now here's what I would like you to do. I want you to read what your prophet Mo said. And I want you to turn to the Bible passage I wrote down in the column, and I want you to read that out loud and compare the two. So I would read what Moses said. I turned to the Bible passage. I read that, and it contradicted it. But I wasn't going to let him know. So I moved on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And by that time, I could feel my whole face flushing in embarrassment. I was humiliated by the idea that Mo was not following what was clearly written in the Bible. So I just broke down crying, and I said, Pastor, am I going to hell? He said, no, you're not going to hell. You were saved. You've just gotten off from what Jesus wants you to do, and I want to help bring you back. So I repented of following this false prophet, repented of following false apostles, repented of following false scripture, and came back to Christ. It's because of that that I go out and minister to people in the cults ever since then. When the children of God came in town on their bus and they were out dancing and singing and playing guitars and and enjoying themselves, I really had a longing to be with them. And this pastor went down to witness to them with me. And he said, I understand what you're going through. You just want to join in that group, don't you? I said, I do. He said, let's turn that emotion you have into evangelism. And I started evangelizing them then and never quit since. That's what the Lord does when he turns you around. So now I go out and minister to the Mormons and minister to the Jehovah's Witnesses and minister to the others. And why do I do it? It's because of what Paul said in the next verse. 
See, the word cult is not found in the Bible. But if it were, it's this definition in verse 4. If he who comes preaches another Jesus. Now the word another here, or if you have the older King James, it says a different Jesus. The word another here is the Greek word alos. Spelled phonetically A-L-O-O-S. Alos. And it means one of a similar kind. One that looks like the original, but is not the original. One that is, in fact, a counterfeit and is made to look just like the original. That's what the alas Jesus is. Now, you might correctly say, but there's only one true Jesus. Yes, there is. That's his point. But when these false apostles come into the church, like what they did with Corinth, or when these false teachers come into our society and our culture here, and they start preaching Jesus is a little bit different than what you've always understood him to be. That's the other Jesus. That's the Allah's Jesus. That's the one that's a counterfeit. The one that looks like the same one you believe in, but you start finding things that don't go along with Scripture. And that's why he said in the next clause, if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Now, what's our standard of measurement? Our standard of measurement is the Bible itself, what Paul taught us, what the others taught us. And that's why he uses the word we. The Jesus of Paul is the same as the Jesus of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. The Jesus of the apostles is what he taught. Not a different message, the same message. So they have the original. The copy no matter how much it looks like the original, is still a copy. And it's not the original. Or a counterfeit, no matter how much it may look like the original, is still a counterfeit. Now, Billy Graham wrote a book called How to Be Born Again. And in this book, he deals with this very passage, the other Jesus. And in our currency system, one of the things that we train tellers to do, or at least they used to, to identify counterfeit bills is not to take them into a museum where they have on the wall and in, in cases hundreds and hundreds of counterfeit bills that have all been printed incorrectly and showing them, well, this part is wrong and that part is wrong and that's how we identify this and that's how we identify that. No, they don't show them the counterfeits. Instead, they have them handle the original and handle the original and handle the original so that the moment a counterfeit passes through their hands, they can identify it. And that's what Paul is saying to us. Understand the Jesus we have preached. Know the Jesus that we have preached. And then when the counterfeit comes along, you'll be able to identify it. Counterfeits such as what Moses David Berg taught, or what Joseph Smith taught with the Mormon church, where he said Jesus the one that you read about in the New Testament, was actually born in heaven first before he was born on earth. He was actually born on another planet. And he has a father God and a mother God. And that father God died on the cross on that planet just like Jesus died on this planet. This is Mormonism. And Jesus saw him do that there and that's why Jesus died on the cross here. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's a different Jesus. A Jesus who is not eternally God. A Jesus who is not one in the Godhead as a true God, but is a God who became a God in, uh, among multiple gods instead of the true and singular God. Or you have the Jehovah's Witnesses. Their Jesus looks so much like your Jesus. But then they tell you the grand secret. And that is that Jesus was a created being. He was created by God the Father. Jehovah God created him, and then he created all other things. So they've changed the text. Instead of Colossians saying he created all things, they add the word other. He created all other things. And why is that? Because he was created as Michael the archangel. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses have another Jesus. See, we don't call people or groups cult members or cults because we want to name call them. We're doing this as an identification to say, what did the Apostle Paul teach us? He taught us about the true Jesus, the one whom we have preached. Anything other than that 
is another Jesus. Or the Jesus of Christian science with Mary Baker Eddy, the metaphysics groups, which later became the New Age movement, where they say Jesus is not the Christ. In her writings, Science and Health and Keys of the Scripture, she says Jesus as material manhood is not the Christ. I would go to Christian science meetings and witness to them. You go there? Yes, I go there. That's where they are. And I go to kingdom halls and witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. I go to Mormon churches and witness to Mormons. And I've gone to Christian science meetings and sat down in their healing meetings and given true testimony of God healing through Jesus Christ, the one true Savior of mankind. But when I testify of that, I also share with them what the Bible says, that Jesus is the Christ. Who is the liar? Except he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the liar and the Antichrist. 1 John 2.22 The liar is the one who says Jesus is not the Christ. Then I show them their own writings from Mary Baker Eddy. Jesus as material manhood is not the Christ. I let them conclude what that means after reading 1 John 2.22. She's a liar. And she's part of the Antichrist system. If anyone comes and preaches another Jesus, the Allahs, the one that looks so much like the real one but is not the real one, whom we have not preached. Or, he says, if you receive a different spirit. Now in the King James Version, they'll have different Jesus and different spirit. Actually, this is correctly translated as the word different because it's the Greek word heteros. Now we use heteros in English. For heterosexual, meaning the ones that's the opposite sex of whatever you are. Heterodoxy, meaning the opposite of orthodoxy. And here he's using it to say a heteros spirit, a different spirit. Or if you receive a different spirit, the opposite spirit, which you have not received. Now we know that the church received the true Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. We read Acts chapter 2 to find that out. But there's another spirit that has entered these people, the ones who follow the false Jesus. And he said, or if you receive a different spirit, the opposite spirit. I've talked to a lot of groups that claim they speak in tongues, and that is their evidence, they say, that they are born again. Their evidence, they say, that they are uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and they're in a group called the Way International. But what's different about them and Pentecostal Christians or Assembly of God or some legitimate Christian group, is that they learn their tongues. And when I look further into the Way International, which I've won many of these people to the Lord, I used to go to their twig meetings and sit down in their Bible studies and then I'd teach them what the Trinity is and teach them about Jesus. And then i get kicked out of the Bible study. But most often, many of them would go with me. In Las Vegas, Nevada, one time I was reading my Bible in a Denny's Late night uh, breakfast, I always eat breakfast late night when I'm up, and uh, my wife and I were sitting there, and this lady came by, she saw me reading my Bible, and she said, is that a Bible? I said, yes. And the Lord just quickened to me that she was in the Way International. She said, well, I'm into biblical research, what are you into? I said, oh, I'm into biblical research too, so I started talking to her. Turns out there was a midnight Bible study, or a late night Bible study, when she got off her shift, she was going to go to it, she invited me to come and teach. After we spent several minutes talking to her about the Lord, she thought, you people know the Word of God. Come and teach our Bible study. So I went to the twig meeting, that they used to call it a twig meeting anyway. And it was in Las Vegas. And we sat down. There's about 30 people there. And I said, I'm going to teach you tonight about Jesus Christ and who He truly is. And I started with John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, showing that Jesus Christ is God. Then I went to verse 18 of chapter 1, then chapter 5 and verse 18, chapter 10 and verse 30, chapter 20 and verse 28, showing that Jesus is God all the way through the Gospel of John. They've been taught by Victor Paul Weirwill, Jesus Christ is not God. That's the name of his book. They all had it. I just taught them from John himself that Jesus Christ is God. He's God incarnate. Matthew 1.23 Emmanuel, God with us. 
I used to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses down at the post office, and I'd, they'd be holding their Watchtower and Awake magazine. I'd stand right beside them with my, my gospel tracts and say nothing to them. I'd just stand there with my gospel tracts. People come by and take their Awake or Watchtower. I'd say, can I trade you this for that? And they got mad at me. And I asked them, you have a briefcase there with your Bible in it. Would you pull your Bible out? The man did. I said, turn to Matthew 1.23, even in your version. What does it say Jesus is? Emmanuel is translated as God with us. That's one of the places they translated it correctly. Well, he said, well, it's not Jehovah God with us. I said, well, then you've got two gods. You've got Jehovah God and that God with you. But my Bible teaches there's one God. Well, we are monotheists. We believe in one God. Excuse me. You just told me this God with us is not Jehovah. So who is he? Well, he's a, he's a God. And I said, no, he's not a God. That makes a second God. By the time we got done, the guy didn't know where he was coming from. But I knew where I was coming from because the Bible teaches one God. And Matthew 1.23 is speaking of the true God is with us. That was the spectacular thing about Jesus being God incarnate. He's the true God stamped in human flesh. Not a God, not another God, not a created God, but the true God. If he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not accepted. So with the Way International, they claimed they had the Holy Spirit, which was a different spirit altogether. And they would speak in tongues to prove they had the Holy Spirit, but it was a different spirit because they had a false Jesus who was not God. You cannot produce the Holy Spirit, the true Holy Spirit, when you believe in a false Jesus. Or if you receive a different gospel. Again, this is the word heteros. The opposite gospel. In other words, a gospel that cannot save. See, the church received the true Holy Spirit and they accepted the true gospel. That's the gospel he talked about earlier in chapter 10 that he had delivered to them. And that gospel that he gave to them was the same as all the other, other apostles taught. That's why he said, we have given it to you. That's why we stick with the word of God as our source for truth. And we don't go outside of it to all of man's writings. But if you have a different gospel which you have not accepted. The opposite gospel. A gospel that cannot save. It's a gospel of works most often. There's a few exceptions to that among the cults, but usually it's a gospel where you must do certain things to get God to like you well enough in order for God to accept you. These are works for salvation. Or it's like my cousin. As soon as I clean up my act... I'll come to God. Now God's still waiting for him to clean his act up. I'm still waiting for him to clean his act up. And he hasn't done it yet. See, when man tries to save himself, he always remains in his lost condition. But when we turn our lives over to Jesus, there's hope of eternal life. A different gospel which you have not accepted. The true gospel entails this. I gave it to you already. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. That Christ died. This is the gospel whereby you are saved if you believe. If you continue believing, it says, what I have delivered to you. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. Died for your sins according to the Scriptures. Listen to what he's saying there. People have asked a lot of questions to me over the years. And I don't think they're always being facetious when they say, but they say, why did he have to die on a cross? Couldn't he have died in another way? I say, no, he could not have. Because it's according to the Scriptures. The cross was prophesied in Psalm chapter 22. In detail, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was prophesied in 1100 B.C., 600 years before the Romans even invented death by crucifixion. And you have the complete story in the Old Testament. Or look at the book of Isaiah, 750 B.C. I have stretched my arms all the day long unto a stubborn and disobedient people. 
You might think that that is just a statement of God embracing his people. I have stretched my arms out all the day long to a stubborn and disobedient people until you read the book of Acts, which quotes that in reference to Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. So he was not crucified like this, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. He was crucified in crus emixia, which means in the T-shape, if you aren't up on your Latin, as what we've always used as the symbol of Christ's cross in Christianity. I have stretched my arms out all the day long. All the day long. See, he didn't say month, didn't say week, didn't say year. What day did God stretch his arms out all the day long to a stubborn and disobedient people? The day Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. A different gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So people ask, well, couldn't he have, like in our modern society, could he have been perhaps shot for our sins? Could he have been stabbed for us? No. Could he have, one person even says, could he have been run over by a vehicle for our sins? No, he can't. Because that's not in accordance with the Old Testament prophecy of who he is. So they do come up with these questions. And I think that sometimes they are sincere questions, but I think in other times they are trying to say they want to get away from the grotesqueness of that crucifixion where he bore your sins. They want to get away from it because they understand that if it's real, that if it really happened the way the Scripture does say, then we really do have something to deal with. We are confronted individually by the cross of Jesus Christ, by him hanging there on that cross, dying for our sins. And why did he do it? As your vicarious atonement, your substitute, that you deserve that death, and you're not taking it, not if you're born again. And it tells us in Scripture that he became sin, that you might become righteousness in him. So there's not just, as we often say in Christianity, in turning our lives over to Jesus Christ, there's not just a transformation. We had that in one of our songs. There is a transformation. But there's a lot of transformations that people can go through without Jesus. AA transforms people all of the time. NA transforms people all of the time. But they don't have Jesus. So it's not just a transformation. That's part of it. That's not the whole story. There's a transferation. Something's transferred to you. He died sinless on that cross... And what was transferred to him was your sin. And what was transferred to you is his righteousness. It's all through the New Testament. So there's something transferred that no cult can give you, no world religion can give you, no philosophy can give you. Nothing in this world compares to what God did in Jesus Christ. There's a transference. And if you don't understand what I just said, then maybe you haven't had that transferred to you. Maybe you don't understand the true atonement of Jesus Christ, that His blood covers your sins. When Christians speak that way, they look at us like we're strange. What does it mean His blood covered your sins? It means that through His shed blood, the atonement was accepted by God, and that's the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, that He was buried for three days, and on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied He would rise again. Prophesied he would die for your sins. Prophesied in the scriptures he would rise again. And that's the proof of God's acceptance of his atonement. And when God accepted his atonement, that means it's valid for you. That means it's valid for me. And we don't have to look to another Jesus. We don't have to look to another spirit. We don't have to look to another gospel. We have the truth right here. Now he closes that verse by saying, the different gospel which you have not accepted, you might well put up with it. And that last comment only goes to state what he started with, and that is they were discarding his message, discarding his apostleship, and accepting a new apostleship of somebody that did not even understand what God was about or what the Scriptures were about. And they were replacing the Apostle Paul and his message with a new message, a new Jesus, a new spirit, and a new gospel. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one way of being saved, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel message that's like that. 
And anyone who comes along and says that you must do certain works to inherit that salvation. You must go through temple rituals in the Mormon church to get to the celestial kingdom. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You must be a publisher for God's kingdom, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you don't give the hours to Jehovah's kingdom, and they do have timesheets that pioneer Jehovah's Witnesses, fill in how many hours they keep a week for Jehovah. And they're going to show it to him on the day of judgment. As if he doesn't already know what they've done. That's a weak God. That's a weak God. Who doesn't know what I'm doing. And I have to prove it with a timesheet. Works for salvation. Or with all the other groups that add works to the grace of God. If we'd like to have our worship team come up, I'd like to share these last few moments with you about your personal need for salvation. Can we have the worship team come forward? Are they back here? Are they listening? Okay, somebody go and wake up the worship team. Thank you. He's rubbing his eyes. And as I share with you in these last few moments, we never know who is with us and who isn't. We never know what God may be doing or may not be doing in a certain individual's life. But if this message today about false Jesus is compared to the true Jesus gets you thinking about your own life and you think, well, you know, I, I was raised a certain way in a certain kind of church and this guy called it a cult. And I just sort of slid into the Christian belief from that, but I never really repented of it. I never really understood that the Jesus I accepted was a false Jesus. Or if you were raised in a certain kind of a situation where you may not have even understood who Jesus was and you think that Jesus was just a good man, that he was a prophet that told the truth most of the time or some of the time or however people want to state it, and that he was just a good man or a moral man who showed us how to live. He was our great exemplar is what the Masonic Lodge says. He's not God incarnate, but he's only an example. No, he's much more than an example. He's God who came into the human race to die for your sins and for mine. So as we stand together in this last worship song, I'm going to be standing down here in the front. If anyone, anyone wants to speak with me about receiving Jesus as a Lord and Savior, I invite you to do that. I invite you to take a moment of reflection at this time and say within yourself, what is my faith all about? Have I given heed to that destructive spirit, that false spirit that we were warned about by the Apostle Paul that was the same spirit that deceived Eve? Has he given me a crafty message that has destroyed what my mind should believe, but instead I believe something else? If you're in that kind of position then I invite you to come down and talk with me today and I'd like to lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship team.